You're listening to That'll Preach. We're here with an interview today. Uh, today we have a guest, Ryan Hurd. Ryan is uh, the professor of theology at the Davenant Institute, and he's got a focus on the doctrine of God. And uh, today he's going to be talking about uh, a, a subject that I think is really interesting. Uh, he's going to be talking about the doctrine of Scripture and how it relates to the different senses in church history and all these kinds of things. It's actually maybe maybe he's a better person to explain what he's going to talk about. But uh, I found some of his writings online and listened to some of his lectures, and it's really insightful stuff. Uh, but Ryan, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be with you. So Ryan, I uh, I initially stumbled upon your stuff just in you know being part of Davenant Institute classes and just being on Discord and seeing some some of the stuff you've written. And I originally found your work through some of the uh, writing you've done on impassibility. And uh, as we talked, and I correspond with you, you had been talking about work you're doing regarding the senses of Holy Scripture, which I thought was a really interesting topic. And uh, as I delved into more of your work on that, I saw, wow, this is really, really interesting stuff and uh, stuff that I've maybe thought about, but I never had language to articulate that. Um, so maybe for our audience, when we talk about senses of Holy Scripture, what, what does that mean? How would you, you know, tell the average layperson, like, what is, what do you, what are we talking about when we talk about the sense of Holy Scripture? Yeah, um, that's a kind of a difficult question to begin to get in the groove of how theologians traditionally have uh, talked about what scripture does to us, how it informs our mind, and the contents of that would be, roughly speaking, the, the senses uh, of Holy Scripture. It's kind of a bit difficult for folks today to start encountering that, primarily because it's so removed from what people normally consider today. And al also almost all the readings that people, the methods of reading that people like to use. So one of the main differences uh, might be between how the fathers or medievals think about the senses versus, versus how people approach Holy Scripture today would be that folks today primarily operate in terms of meaning. Um, now, what is meaning? Well, that's kind of also an interesting question yeah, as get, well. Getting all existential. Yeah, you know, question, but, yeah. but what, what, what folks normally mean by meaning uh, as far as I listen to them, you know, your, your, your general notion that comes into your mind when you think about the meaning of Holy Scripture. Um, but uh, what the fathers mean by the senses is something very, very different. And this actually is, is important even right off the bat, because one of the things that people come up against very quickly when they read the tradition is the fact that the fathers and medievals say very readily that there are many senses of Holy Scripture. And when people hear that in terms of meaning, they're thinking, oh, there's lots of meanings to mm -hmm. each word or something like that. And this gets them very concerned. And it's, it gets them rightly concerned because that's, uh, that's obviously fallacious and not at all what we're talking about. Um, so it is a bit difficult to say, and, and it honestly requires a fair amount of philosophical background and, and, uh, and thought to really get at what's going on. But uh, to give some functional synonyms, uh, we might point to something like insights or notions or perhaps even uh, truths 
uh, of Holy Scripture. That's starting to get more into the arena of uh, what the fathers and uh, the medievals mean. They're pulling from Aristotle, De Interpretatione texts. For those out there who are Thomists, uh, senses is equivalent to the Thomas rationes. Again, that's a philosophical term that's not going to help people. But, uh, you know, insights, notions, truth, something along those lines. Um, it could be helpful, though, to use something like an example. So when we read the line in Holy Scripture that God is love, theologians who are seeking the sense in these letters will immediately start to talk about not what the word love means, something like that, but they'll ask, first of all, what love actually is, like creaturely love, what love really is, what is the thing called love. And then they'll take exactly what that is, and they will ascribe or predicate it to God. And the mode or way that that ascription or judgment is true is identically what the tradition actually means by the sense in these letters that God is love. So that's why I gave kind of the synonyms of insights or truths. It's more logical, it's more metaphysical, but it actually tells you something real about God rather than the meaning of a word or the meaning of a set of texts, conventional signs on a page or something like that. It's actually a claim that the thing that love is, is found in God. And, you know, there's lots of other things we might want to say about that, but that's getting in the general direction of things. And that's what the fathers and medievals are really after uh, actual knowledge about reality. And, and that goes for whether we're talking about God or Christ or anything else uh, found in Holy Scripture when we uh, start to read it. That's a helpful, I think, way to express it. And, and your your words of insight and that 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 kind of gets at something. Um, wh whenever I think about sense of scripture from like you, you, your first Bible studies, you know, there's there's one meaning to the text, and it mm -hmm. says what it says. And right. when you get to because some one of the things that you talk about a lot is literal and spiritual sense. Mm -hmm. And when I hear spiritual sense, and it's like you, you know your evangelical. Sure. Uh, sirens start going off being like, you mean like Christ had a spiritual resurrection. He wasn't actually physically, literally resurrected from the dead. You mean that, you know, the Exodus is a metaphor and it didn't actually happen. You know, that that yeah. that kind of dichotomy is there. And spiritual also, you, you think about, OK, the spiritual sense, you can just are we just doing eisegesis? Are we just going into the right. text and making up what we want to see? And right. And that right. kind of gets spiritualizing, projected, spiritualizing. And that kind of gets yeah. projected onto. I, I remember even hearing from, you know, pastors and preachers I listened to that the church fathers, they just, yeah. they were just wacky. They were just out of this world, just making up things on the fly, you know, yeah. reading, reading too much into a text. Um, yeah. But it seems like what you're, what you're articulating here is actually that's, it only seems that way if you have a very kind of flat view of how scripture and meaning it works. Yeah, I think I think that's helpful as an, an initial gesture to speak of like thick and thin versions of reading. Um, that's that's generally helpful to get people going in the right direction. Of course, we want to really precision this hard if we're going to pursue it and uh, develop it into a method. Um, but yeah, a lot of the concerns that people have when they first approach the doctrine of the senses of Holy Scripture 
especially when maybe they've picked it, they've picked up a church father or they've been told some of the things that, that you uh, gestured at. A lot of their concerns are actually valid and uh, real and true, and not things that the fathers are committing, not things that the tradition is committing, even though you certainly can find various abuses. And maybe we can talk about some of that stuff later on. But the, the point is that a lot of the instincts and the resistances that people have, especially initially, are well-founded and uh, just kind of an apples and oranges situation, we might say. So if I start talking about an apple and you get all upset because, you know, uh, I'm, I'm describing it as a color red and you say, no, it's actually orange and things like this, and you really get your back up. Well, clearly we're talking about two different things. And that's a little bit of what the situation is here when we, when we approach this topic. What got you personally interested in the topic of senses of scripture? Is there anything in your own life that kind of yeah. provoked you to go down this path and study it as extensively as you have? Yeah, there's there's a number of reasons, uh, probably three things that come to mind. The first would be uh, a lot of my work is doctrine of God, essence and attributes, what uh, some of the listeners might be familiar with today as uh, classical theism, even though uh, I certainly would not ascribe myself as a classical theist. But the the typical things you like to hear uh, on the street today, like simplicity, infinity, and various negative and positive names, and you mentioned impassibility, these kinds of uh, attributes or names of God, which people are uh, excited about today. And that's really where a lot of my work concentrates. And one of my main passions uh, as a professional theologian is to explain to simple people how these names of God, even though they're often not found in Holy Scripture or, or not really certainly immediately derivable from the text of Holy Scripture. Nonetheless, how we're getting them uh, in such a way from the text that we're not actually violating the letter of Holy Scripture or taking the, the, the letters very seriously. When, when it's written that God has an arm, you hear classical theists jump in right immediately and say, well, no, of course, he doesn't obviously have an arm in, in these types of moves. And people become very uncomfortable with that, especially when you start to get into more and more radical things that we're actually doing to the text of Holy Scripture. So uh, really those basic concerns uh, are, are very close and near and dear to my heart. I grew up fundamental Baptist, total Bible thumper, and I praise God for that because it gave me a passion for the authority of Holy Scripture and the reliability and, and, and the the notions that basic grandma readings of the text are fundamentally correct and that no matter how good of a theologian or how high and mighty of a theologian you are, you're not actually really doing anything more than grandma. And so a lot of those types of passions are uh, what, what drove a lot of my initial my initial work in the senses. The other couple reasons would be and the other area of my work is the doctrine of the Trinity. One thing I noticed very early on in my studies, especially of the fathers and medievals on the doctrine of the Trinity, is that if you don't use the method of reading Holy Scripture that they used, then you will not be able to derive the doctrines they derived. And so any change on the doctrine of Holy Scripture inherently impacts significantly. Uh, even the plausibility, let alone the truthfulness 
of the Holy Trinity, the things we know about the Holy Trinity. You know, one of the basic commitments of the fathers is that we know nothing of the Holy Trinity except from supernatural revelation chiefly contained in Holy Scripture. And so much so that if we indeed know nothing at all except from Holy Scripture, then if you start to fiddle with how we derive those notions or truths or insights, like I was just describing up above, if you fiddle with that or if you mess that up, really serious things happen. And that's actually historically what happened in the early modern period there were significant changes on how holy scripture is to be read primarily instigated by humanists and uh, ultimately that's the tradition of reading that one out especially among protestants but also among the league of theologians where we have radically different ways of reading the text of holy scripture that are apples and oranges today from the method of reading proper the fathers and the medievals and this is why people don't believe in the Trinity anymore, <laughs> straight up. So these types of issues and concerns really led me to, uh, or forced me even to work really hard on the doctrine of Holy, uh, the sense of Holy Scripture. Otherwise, you can't derive, insofar as it's true and meaningful, you can't derive the doctrine of the Trinity, Christ, grace, the sacraments, the mysteries of the Christian faith from the the source or the principle uh, of supernatural revelation, instrumentally speaking, that we call Holy Scripture. A final reason would be uh, primarily ecumenical. One of the main lines of contention today, and also historically for the last three, four, five hundred years between Protestants and Roman Catholics, has been on the senses of Holy Scripture. And uh, one of the First areas that people will run into when they start uncovering these types of debates is Protestants say there's only one sense, namely the literal, and Roman Catholics say there's many senses, literal and spiritual. And uh, of course, you know the spiritual sense is how they uh, derive their their crazy doctrines and et cetera, et cetera. You, you like the polemic. Um, so a lot of my work is reproachment between Protestants and Roman Catholics and understanding both sides. And when you actually look at what both sides are saying, primarily historically and in the great theologians of either tradition, again, it's an apples and oranges situation. It's both true that there's only one sense, and it's also true that there are two senses hmm. and multiple senses. And one of the real tasks of theologians is to acknowledge truth in all areas, to deal with the right-headed motives and concerns of all persons in various traditions, particularly as they disagree. Very rarely, as you encounter the tradition of Christian theology, do you find serious thinkers who are very worked up about something who are worked up about it for no good reason mm. and harvesting those good reasons and satisfying those good reasons really is a helpful way of deriving deep insights into reality and its cosmic or universal sense. So a lot of my more ecumenical work, my attempts to reconcile Protestant and Roman Catholic traditions of reading, and frankly, what becomes patristic medieval versus early modern modes of reading Holy Scripture, because that's really what it is, is 
the early modern way of reading the text, which champions the, the, the so-called literal sense. And there's a lot of equivocation here, primarily floats into Protestantism. And so it's, it's an early modern way of reading, which primarily occupies the Protestant terrain initially, and then it then gradually emerges over the Roman Catholics. So it's not really a Protestant Roman Catholic issue. It's an early modern versus patristic and medieval issue. And sinking those insights together uh, is, is really what, what my work is all about. I never really thought about that before. And if, if I'm understanding correctly what you're saying, if we look at the orthodox theology that was hammered out and articulated with the early church, that had to come from a particular methodology of reading the text. Mm-hmm. And if we like the results of their methodology, then that means that the way they read it is important into getting those results. Yeah. And if we ditch, ditch the way that we that they read it, yeah. we're going to start to tinker with the Trinity and, and other ideas as well downstream yeah. from that. That's fascinating. Yeah. I never I never thought about that in, in that sense. Um, you, you talk about the early modern reading is kind of what predominates maybe most, you know, average lay, lay people today. Sure. Um, and you mentioned literal and spiritual sense. So you're talking about in, in, in one sense, there's one sense. In another sense, there's two senses. And But uh, what do you think? It's interesting. Average- it's yeah. interesting. As you're using the word sense, there's one sense that there's one sense. Yeah. That's very close. You have the notion in your mind of what the fathers actually mean by mm. sense. So it's the aspect. It's the truth. It's the way in which. It's the manner in which. Those right. types of gestures. Again, you hear how different it is from speaking of terms of meaning. Right. So meaning is important and it's meaningful. And we do we do talk about the meaning of the words, the right. grammar of the text, these types of things. But the fathers understand that to be basic and initial and worthless if you don't carry on, you're the conditional, if you don't carry on and actually get to the truth. It's like the truth content. What are the things being talked about? The cold, hard realities, those types of things. So, yeah, yeah, very different, very different items. So what do you think the average Christian would misunderstand about these terms you're using and the tradition uses literal and spiritual? You know, what do you think gets people tripped on? We mentioned a little bit. Um, yeah. But how would you disentangle that for people to kind of calm them down from maybe worrying about spiritual, but also yeah, giving yeah. some insight into how the church fathers, the early church, medieval church kind of read these texts. Yeah, well, again, I, I would just speak from personal experience for a moment and say I've had uh, plenty of students uh, who come in with the same initial concerns that your normal, healthy evangelical uh, does well to have who after a few hours of working on this kind of thing realizes, oh, yeah, my concerns are totally recognized by the fathers and and not done away with. Like we don't trample those concerns. So when folks get concerned about spiritualizing readings of the text or allegorizing, you start to hear the the, the Z endings. It's where we know we're abusing things. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And the great theologians of the tradition will also be very overt in their criticisms of theologians, even great theologians who abuse. And so there, there is a sense of this we can wade through. Um, but perhaps before addressing 
some of people's concerns, it might be good to just say what exactly we're talking about to try and get the apples, oranges situation sorted. So what would we mean by the literal and spiritual sense? Um, Well, the literal sense is not at all what people mean by the word literal today. I have uh, a number of younger sisters who are teenagers right now, and I listen constantly to them talk about how this literally is the case, and it's literally that way, and this every other word is literally the word literally, and I am being literal at the moment. Uh, the common semantic range or the sense in which literal is used is not at all what we're talking about when we speak in the tradition of the literal sense of Holy Scripture. Okay. What you need to hear from the literal sense in the tradition is literal, as in the sense coming from the letters. So it's the wordy sense, uh, we might say. Uh, and a technical definition is, is quite simply that the literal sense is that signification in words or letters. So whatever sense is found, whatever truth is found, notion is found, again, we're resting on a proper notion of sense. Whatever sense is coming from the way that the words or the letters signify, that's what we call the literal sense. Whereas in contrast, the fathers believed that not only do the words of Holy Scripture signify, but also the realities that the words of Holy Scripture talk about also signify. And when we take signification or sense from the realities found in Holy Scripture, that's what we call the spiritual sense. So let me give just a simple illustration outside the context of Holy Scripture. When I point to a tree and I say or I write, this is a tree, then the letters or the word tree signifies that reality there with leaves and a trunk. It's the actual tree. But there's a, another way in which we can speak of sense in the context of Holy Scripture where the tree itself as an actual reality itself is made to signify yet another reality even beyond. And insofar as the tree itself would be made meaningful, so to say, or significant or truth-bearing, perhaps even, when we take sense from there, that's what we mean by spiritual sense. I see. So what the... F- okay, yeah. Yeah, so... so go ahead, sir. I just want to add a question. So basically, when, when you're saying literal, most people, they they kind of... Is this referring to that tree? Is this yes. word referring to that tree? And that's kind of like what we mean, I think, when we say literal. Like when you say I literally, actually, we right. kind of use it in a hyperbolic way, ironically. But but yes. then you're saying that as Christians, and maybe this is, there's a metaphysical reality that the tree itself, the thing that the word points to, also points to something else as well. Right. And that is the spiritual meaning. The literal one, like you're saying, it's about what the words are signifying. Mm-hmm. And then... The spiritual is about what the words, the real thing that the words are pointing to signify as well. Is that right? So it's, yeah. So it it like telescopes, 
And that's another a very important point to understand why the fathers are comfortable with saying there's multiple meanings mm. in yeah. multiple senses in the text. It's not because there's multiple senses jammed into the words. There's one sense in the words that points you to a thing that itself points to another thing. Yeah. yeah. And because all of this is telescoped from the original letter, hence we say all of it's in, and this is where some of the confusion between Protestants and Roman Catholics historically, it's like Protestants, or excuse me, Presbyterians who subscribe Westminster standards will know that WCF chapter one makes us to say that there's only one sense in Holy Scripture, namely the literal. They're concerned about having multiple pointers in a single word, making for equivocation. Whereas what the tradition actually means is there's one pointer, there's one arrow pointing to a tree, say, and then the tree itself is made to have a pointer to something even more. Right. And what people are probably picking up on, and this is very important to understand historically as well, is the fact that what Protestants often call typology is really covering some of the same terrain as what the tradition meant by spiritual sense. It's when the realities or the things are made to be connected to other things and lead them, lead us deeper into those kinds of truths. Historically, when the spiritual sense was rejected for various reasons in the early modern period, typological readings were developed to kind of backfill the whole. And typology and spiritual sense are not at all the same. They cover a little bit of the same terrain. Spiritual sense is much broader. It's much more technical. There's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot going on. But what typology is, is kind of swallowed up in the spiritual senses. Uh, and correspondingly, what the spiritual sense is trying to accomplish is, is uh, chunked down into this little mangled thing that people call typology and people try to, to work over that. But, you know, when the letter, when the Old Testament letter writes the words, the Red Sea crossing, we talk about the literal sense of those words, the literal sense that brings us to the thing that was the Red Sea crossing, the reality. But the fathers knew that God spoke also within the special history of the Jews, terminating in the special history of Christ. And therefore, these great deeds and acts of God in history and also the things of Israel's worship were themselves made to be significant. So we verge onto the reality of the Red Sea, but God made that Red Sea crossing itself meaningful, significant, revelatory. This is a great deed and doing of God, which makes something to be known that is supernatural. And again, we go from there because that itself is reality is significant. We, we pull sense from that. We call that the spiritual sense. So again, just to sum, the sense that's taken from signification in words or letters, we call the literal, literal sense. Literal is said from letters in contrast to realities because we're talking about signification in words or letters versus signification in realities. It's not literal in contrast to metaphorical is what people always think of today 
also when they start talking about literal versus allegorical or parabolical, things like that. Um, it's also called in the tradition, the historical sense for a couple of reasons, one of which is to do with the fact that one of the primary kinds of literal sense, because there are various kinds of literal sense, uh, are actual, real, historical happenings, we might say. Whereas on the other hand, the sense that's taken from signification realities, which itself is signified by the words of Holy Scripture, we call the spiritual sense. Uh, it's also called the mystical sense from mystery, because it's making something beyond to be known. And sometimes in the Fathers, this is where it gets tricky, it's called the allegorical sense. There's a lot of equivocation. There's like seven different meanings of allegorical in the tradition, and it's quite crazy to sort out. That's uh, helpful. I mean, even just thinking about when you point to the Red Sea example, thinking about God doesn't just author the text, the literal, the letters, but right. he authored the events that those point to. And if exactly. he authors those as well, they also have a meaning as well 100%. as pointing. Yeah, that's really helpful. I mean, because sometimes the worry is you say that's a tree. And I think people are worried, well, tree just means rock too. And it means the sun. And, it mean, and it's like, no, we're saying it points to a specific thing. Yeah, The thing itself also points to other things because that thing, that reality was also imbued with meaning because, you know, of, of God and his purposes yeah, and yeah, yeah. all those things. Yeah. Um, so it's talk about, um, you, you were talking about uh, allegory, allegorizing, and you mentioned briefly, you also mentioned that the literal sense can be called the historical sense. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, again, that's a huge concern. And uh, I think with a lot of people where, how do you stop from jettisoning the historicity of the Bible? You know, uh, how do you, yeah. and, and, and did the fathers have a guardrail for that? Because um, I think there are some people I've heard who say, you know, the fathers, they they didn't really care about the historical sense or, or Jews, whenever the Old Testament, they were totally fine with allegory and not even caring about whether it happened or not. And that kind of maybe popular level kind of skepticism about it. How, how would how would we guard ourselves from ditching the historicity while also well, uh, preventing allegorization to to take away from that historical root? Yeah. <laughs> That's a very difficult and complex question. Um, because the fact of the matter is that the tradition, the great, the big dudes, the big dude fathers, the big dude medievals, um, would make us very uncomfortable today. On the one hand, uh, they do recognize a large amount of the seemingly historical texts as genuinely historical. But on the other, they're very willing for a large number of extremely complex and hedged reasons to admit that there are plenty of things that are presented as historical facts, which never happened. Interesting. Okay. Um, and some of these are, you know, to be very clear, none of these are big things of concern. They might be big things of concern to certain individuals, like, you know, Genesis issues and such like that. But we're not talking about the Gospels. We're talking about whether Joe was a real person, whether Jonah was a real person. So those are not meaningless questions. Those are not unimportant questions. But 
you need to recognize that these were some big dudes and yeah, they believe some scary stuff and they believed it for very important reasons that, that may or may not, one may or may not find convincing. But with that admitted, I think that as I approach this kind of question, I would want to recognize that this is a very real concern, probably for two reasons. Also, historically, uh, probably the two reasons that many in the Protestant tradition were concerned about, especially when they were looking at certain abuses in the medieval tradition, which you know then becomes the Roman Catholic tradition as the Protestant tradition kind of splits off and such. Um, these are kind of the two reasons I would would flag as important for that folks were thinking about. One is to do with basic equivocation and misunderstandings about spiritual or allegorical reading, where there's actually a mixture, a false mixture, a false equivalency going on between allegorizing and doing allegory. I mean it when I say it, I've tracked them all. There are like six to nine different senses of allegory, of allegorical sense. So which allegorical sense and which sense of allegorical sense do you mean? And those are the good ones. We're not even talking about allegorizing, which is what people are always concerned about. And because there's such an insane amount of equivocation throughout the tradition, it's good to recognize that oftentimes people's concerns are very valid and well-founded for the simple fact that they are flagging allegorization when in point of fact, that may or may not be the case of what's going on. Um, The other would be, the other reason why I, I think this is a, a real genuine good concern is the the real abuse of spiritual sense, which is also called allegorical sense. Gosh. Which is what people mean yeah. by metaphorical sense in contrast to literal sense, right? So you you start to you start to, I know this is obnoxious, but you start to hear the issues. But another is this abuse of the spiritual sense, which is again the sense taken from realities that are made revelatory. The Paschal Lamb, the Red Sea Crossing, uh, the serpent that Moses lifts up in the wilderness. These things, particularly that the letter itself of Holy Scripture in other texts determines to be meaningful. Like when John says, uh, quoting Christ, when the Son of Man is lifted up, just as the serpent in the wilderness was lifted up, he's confirming to us that the serpent itself was a revelatory event predicting, right? Typology types of things. There's abuse of spiritual sense when people go either overboard to, 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 to abuses, I would say. One is they start to go overboard about the reality signifying. And then the other is that they don't allow the letter to direct them in this. So what's an example here? Well, there's a great theologian He's actually a Roman Catholic theologian. He's one of my my favorites in, in, in all the world. Come Domingo Banez. He's a neo-scholastic. He's during the time of the Protestant Reformed Orthodox 17th century or so. And he has this quip where, like, he's hardcore spiritual sense. And he has this quip about a dude who, in a sermon, is going through, and every time the reality would is is 
is mentioned in Holy Scripture, he thinks that that's signifying the cross. And he said, and Banya says, this guy has just gone all over the place. He's allegorizing. This is terrible. And he condemns him, right? Same types of concerns as us normal evangelicals today would have. This is coming from a professional theologian, Roman Catholic, who is a hardcore spiritual sense fan, flagging the fact you're just being weird, man. Yeah. Like not every splinter in the text uh, is meant to be the cross of Christ. The other would be not allowing the letter to direct us in apprehending what parts of the reality are meaningful, what parts of the reality are revelatory. So one thing that someone like Thomas Aquinas really works hard to do is recognize that the the text, the letter of the text traces over the reality and draws lines of connection, draws our eyes to different things, and essentially points out the things that themselves are significant. And it does so in various obvious ways. So one of my favorite examples of this is Augustine, who talks about the fact that in John, when we're at the passion scene, we've just completed the, you know, the Pascha here. And the, the letter says that the, the soldier opened the side of Christ with the spear. Augustine says, this word to open is a lightning letter. It's like a burst of lightning alerting you to the fact that this reality that's happening is a revelation. Because when you punch a spear into the side of Christ, we don't talk about that in terms of opening a flap or a door. And Augustine develops a massive theology. And this is the, you know, the bleeding side wound of Christ is extremely important, in especially the medieval tradition, the sacred heart tradition, all these sorts of things. This is the revelatory event of God, which confirms to us that the way of salvation, the door of salvation is opened. It's a very powerful thing. He says it's a lightning letter. Augustine is using and allowing the letter to draw his attention to the thing he's supposed to look at. He's not looking at every aspect of Christ, every body part of Christ. Not at this moment, perhaps we might want to say Christ is a bad example because everything about Christ is significant. He's the revelation of God. Yes. But, you know, bear with me. We might not want to look at every single crumb on the floor that you can derive from the picture, from the historical happening. The letter does this. And in the tradition, we find these various abuses. So when you say that, so if we, if we want to take this to that methodology, you see that passage, the spear opens his side, right? Yeah. And the literal sense is those words, that wor- those words on the page are pointing to an actual reality. And so, so in a the sense, real opening, right? The, the real opening, right? That, that wasn't a metaphor. It was, no. his side was actually open in history, but no. the spiritual sense actually depends on that being a historical event because that's a reality. So exactly. I imagine if there was no, if you were there, maybe the centurion or whatever, and you see that wound opening, that reality, it wasn't like that, that that was that re- that thing happening already was signifying something, but we don't have yeah. access to that unless we have it through the through the text. Right. So, we don't we don't have access to it, but this is kind of getting to really resolving the question in hand yeah. is people worry about 
uh, undercutting the historicity of the right. text of Holy Scripture, the, the historicalness of sure. the facts as they happen. Um, the spiritual sense actually establishes the historicity of the reality, the realness of the reality, because the fathers in the medieval tradition actually taught contrary to various persons that you'll hear today, such as David Bentley Hart, who go all crazy and weird because they don't actually read the fathers properly. And nonetheless, the fathers in medievals taught that you can only have spiritual sense if the reality is real and historical. Hmm. If it's not real and historical, zero spiritual sense, period. So someone like Thomas Aquinas will spend a bunch of time in his Job commentary asking the very technical question, was Job a historical person, yes or no? The reason why he asked that question, which is a difficult question in the tradition, plenty of people think he wasn't. This is just this epic. Plenty of biblical scholars think today he wasn't. If you answer no, zero spiritual sense in the book of Job. Now, guess what? There are plenty of persons in the tradition who will remain nameless, who take the book of Job as an example deny its historicity, and then still go whole hog on the spiritual sense. What are they doing? Allegorizing. So it would yeah. be like if you if you say uh, that is a tree. Right. And the tree and signifies no something. But then you deny the tree exists. Yeah. Then you can't say exactly. that the tree signifies something. I see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So if, you know, if your mind, it's again that telescoping thing. So the letter points to a thing. And then the thing itself points to another thing. If there's no thing itself pointing to another thing, you're just confused. <laughs> there's right. no spiritual sense here. Stop allegorizing. Stop being weird. Stop trouncing on the letter of Holy Scripture. These are all the refrains that most people are very concerned about when they first approach the text. And again, rightly concerned gotcha. about so the opening of the spear, that constrains it. We're not talking about every splinter of the spear being something about Christ. But right. saying the fact that he chooses those words is meant to point us to a reality that happened. And right. that reality that happened is pointing to the, the mystery, the supernatural reality of salvation is now open. Or right. the, the doors of salvation have opened to people. So that so there's that's the maybe the end of the telescope, I guess. That that's that's yep. the actual higher thing we're lifted up to. Yeah. And there's two steps sort of to get there. There's what are the two words steps. pointing to? And then what's the thing that the words are pointing to? pointing to, which would be yep. those salvation kind of realities, the Trinity and grace and all those types of things. 100%. Wow. That's very helpful. That's very helpful. And uh, uh, that's fascinating about the Job. I mean, what did what did Aquinas think about the people who denied the historicity of Job? Was he like, God still doesn't work? Or, you know, what was his um, deal well, with that? Well, Thomas believes that, well, he's handling it for phil in philosophical mm. uh, and, and actually... It's a very technical question. <laughs> well, maybe, I, maybe um, the, uh, I'm kind of curious what you said that there were reasons why some of the fathers didn't want to acknowledge the historicity of Job or Jonah. Yeah. It, yeah. It, what are, I'm kind of curious what those reasons were. Is that a um, whole can of worms? No, it's, it's that when you read the, when you read the letters, um, well, it's, it could be for a variety of reasons. So Someone like Origen, who's one of my favorite theologians, which immediately raises people's eyebrows on the sense of Holy Scripture, 
Um, someone like Origen would respond that, look, we also have other historical records. And some of those historical records, which are actually the writings of historians who are claiming to do history, and they are reputable, they're real historians, they say this didn't happen, X didn't happen, it wasn't this number, that number's off, et cetera, usually minor details. And because of that, and because the primary intention of the author of Holy Scripture, who is God, is not writing a history text, we need to write, recognize these types of things. But in the case of something like a Job or a uh, Jonah, it's just that the it's just that the uh, the style the style of the letter is epic in the, like the ancient Greek Greek sense. So it's an epic, um, and and because of that, it's written in the style of a parable, a play, a Greek poet like Homer, um, and so all the marks are there. Literally, again, literally, and for that reason, you know, there's one might find a good reason to uh, deny the historicity of, of of certain books like that. Same, same, similarly with the you know the issues of Genesis, which are even more thorny. Um, but Thomas believes that Job is a real person, and he's saying that that the spiritual sense depends upon him being a real person. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Is that the Catholic Spir- position today too? That that yep. that would. It's always been the position. Gotcha. Never not been the position. Gotcha. That's helpful. Yeah. Um, how would you, and, and I don't, this is a lot of stuff to digest, maybe for people who haven't really thought too much before, but sure. I think uh, you mentioned you really want to make this accessible to people because it's so critical to understand this. How, how can like just your, just regular ordinary Christians grow in understanding and, and reading this way, understanding the literal and the spiritual sense. How? What are some ways that you think are helpful in developing those habits? I would uh, recommend using reliable guides, whether dead or living. Um, It takes a lot of discipline training to read Holy Scripture. Holy Scripture, we might say, is the most difficult book to learn how to read. Um, and that's okay, by the way. Augustine says that God in Holy Scripture condescends to us just like a mother who slows down her pace to walk in line with her toddler. And as she walks, as God walks with us in Holy Scripture, when we're toddlers and as we grow, he increases speed. So the very beginning reader of the text of Holy Scripture and the master, someone like Thomas Aquinas, They're all being moved by God into revelation, into truth, also by way of errors. God's very strong. He can uh, permissively put things that are uh, wrong uh, into right. So 
That's a by way of encouragement that it takes a very long time to learn how to read the text. But that time and exercise is part of what it means to have revelation happen to you. And uh, so, yeah, that's very important. But I would say use reliable guides. Someone like Thomas Aquinas is probably the most reliable, one of the most reliable guides, particularly among the medievals. One of the reasons for that is that by the time of Thomas, and not only was he a genius, but by the time of Thomas, the crazy equivocation among the fathers, which literally is insanity, it's very difficult to pick up the fathers, uh, was really sorted out in a very clear, determined definition of what these things were was established. Also with the actual vocabulary we're all going to agree to use, we're going to call the spiritual sense this. And we're not going to call it allegorical sense anymore because everybody's confused because there's 50 different senses of allegory. And this is annoying. <laughs> so these types of things are washed away. And as you watch Thomas read the letter of Holy Scripture, particularly through his commentaries, I would start especially with his John commentary. Uh, the fathers have taught from the very beginning that one of the most pound for pound, densely rich books in Holy Scripture, having massive amounts of spiritual sense in it is Gospel of John for a number of different reasons. Um, and as you watch Thomas, he'll first establish the letter and then he'll talk about the reality as it can be or can't be significant. And one of the really admirable methods of Thomas Aquinas, which is also employed by someone like an origin doggedly, is that you can only know for sure that a certain reality is significant and what it's significant of if another letter, Holy Scripture, tells you that it's so. Hmm. So how do you know that when Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, this was a revelatory event? This is a signifying reality. How do you know? Well, you might be suspicious because this is a really weird thing happening and God kind of talks like this in the Old Testament. Okay. But you can't prove that except from the letter of Holy Scripture. That's one thing that's always very important to know about senses of Holy Scripture. Never, ever, ever do we derive doctrine from the spiritual sense. Hmm. Only the literal sense. Period. That has always been the teaching of the fathers and the medievals. So that goes even for establishing the spiritual sense. So I have to go to John 3, where Christ tells me, Son of Man is lifted up just like Moses and the serpent. And then I can say, Oh, well, that's what it's connected to, right? I can have hunches, and maybe I'm particularly feeling very bright that day and I've discovered it on my own. But being certain about it requires the letter of Holy Scripture to inform me. So it's very determined way of reading according to the letter. And Thomas displays that extremely admirably. You'll find him establish the letter, sense of the letter, and then I'll talk about the reality. And he'll suggest a sense and he'll suggest it given another text of Holy Scripture. And he quotes it. And the insane amount of texts of Holy Scripture that Thomas just had at his fingertips, like he is dropping an insane amount of Bible 
as his guide of reading Bible, which is obviously what we want to do. We want to allow Holy Scripture to interpret Holy Scripture, or the sense of Holy Scripture to interpret the letter of Holy Scripture, and Thomas displays that very admirably. So with the uh, spear in the side that uh, that uh, Augustine had, would Aquinas see that as a legitimate spiritual sense? Like, would there have to be a corresponding verse that also points to the the wound opening? Like, well, how would how would Aquinas this grade is, Augustine? This is a this is a more advanced question. <laughs> there are there are there are very long deductions we have to do for the letter of Holy Scripture, which are often not viable. Um, but one thing that the fathers rely upon as an initial grounds for good suspicion was, is there a connection between testaments? Hmm. Do you hear any echoes? This is what we do biblical theology today. So Augustine says, so this is Augustine's defense, actually his actual defense. He opened his side. Okay, where is there another opening of the side in Holy Scripture? Be Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. He goes to actually the Ark of Noah. Oh. But yeah, Adam and Eve is also a one. And, and then you see, oh, this is just biblical theology. And that's mm. right. Biblical theology alerts us to potential spiritual senses, or I should say, it alerts us to potentially significant realities. And then we go from there. So there's a lots of ways to derive a proof from the letter of Holy Scripture to support doing spiritual sense. And that's what the fathers are doing. That is fascinating. I mean, is this also... I'm just thinking, is this also a Jewish way of reading the text with, with it, you know, it's absolutely Jewish reading as is learned from Philo. I mean, this is very traditional. Yeah, absolutely. It's always been the way people have read. Cause oftentimes people, I mean, I just, this is just in conversations I've had, there, there was a sense that, you know, readings became Hellenized and allegory, mm-hmm. you know, all that stuff. And the very strict historical literal reading of the Jews was kind of taken away, but that, no, not really. Okay. Yeah, there you go. There you have it. There you have it. Uh, that's a really uh, helpful summary. I mean, I, I want to, there, there's a couple things that that y- you said with, well, so somebody like Calvin, d- is mm-hmm. Calvin, um, would he be opposed to these things that Aquinas is suggesting or, or is he, you know, uh, is, yeah, wh- wh- how wh- did the reformers kind of, stray away from this or was it incorporated into the way they thought but they refined it a little bit how where's the bridge there or did they just go the total humanist route and just kind of dispose of these ideas of spiritual sense like is there a protestant spiritual sense well hopefully not but um it is a complicated question so calvin Origin is very hard to read, and Calvin doesn't really know how to read him very well. Origin is the big baddie in Calvin's time. Hmm. Uh, he also plays the big baddie before Calvin's time, admittedly, for a large number of reasons, not, not least to do with uh, secular uh, emperors. But uh, nonetheless, by the time of Calvin, Origin is the archetype and epitome of allegorizing or spiritualizing. Doing this whole thing that I, I mentioned, my, my favorite theologian, Domingo Banias, 
Thomas is my th- favorite yeah. theologian, but that most. You know, he's looking at every single splinter throughout the Bible and he's like, oh, this is the cross. Yeah. This kind of weird stuff. Yeah. To which the reformers rightly respond, guys, don't be weird. Like, let's just stop doing that. That's just really weird, particularly because this is being hijacked during this time period by certain bad Roman Catholic theologians. So certainly not all Roman Catholic theologians. The better the better ones are never doing this. There's plenty of Roman Catholic apologists, primarily Jesuits, who are using allegorizing as a way to prop up various teachings that the reformers would have problems with. Now, you heard me say a minute ago, the cardinal golden rule of any time you're doing spiritual senses, or really any senses, never, never do we derive anything pertaining to doctrine except from the literal sense. The spiritual sense has no probative value. This is taught by all fathers, all medievals. It comes from Dionysius. Allegory is not probative. It is fundamental. So you can immediately see that various, I don't want to make too much of it, but there are various Roman Catholic apologists during this time who are being bad theologians. Hmm. And they're often the interlocutors of the reform. And when they're when the reformers are responding to this situation, they're of course responding correctly, saying, "Look, like first of all, your arguments are invalid. Second of all, you're just running roughshod over the letter of Holy Scripture. We want to be convinced by the letter. That is good patristic medieval instincts, is what we do. And so Calvin is responding to this. Luther is responding to this. You go read the classic text." The one might say the classic proof text is the Galatians 4 section where Paul uses the word, this is an allegory, talking about uh, you know, the the Sarah and Hagar and the two sons. And so you go read Calvin's commentary, Luther's commentary, they both say origin is a crazy man, and you know, we should do this. Um they they they're misreading origin for various reasons. Mm. But that's that's regardless. That's just a historical issue. What they're saying is actually correct. Um, so, but with that said, there is a humanist instinct, which does destroy or undercut theology that is more and more present to sectors among Protestantism. And then it it starts to come, become dominant as, uh, as theology dies in the early modern period. And that is very inimical to spiritual sense itself. And that's one of the routes where the typological way of reading kind of takes its place. So you look at a pro- so Protestants are the only ones that have typological reading. Roman Catholics oh, don't really? have typological reading because they 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 accomplish they accomplish what typology does, and they accomplish it without the problems of typology by way of the spiritual sense. So again, that's the overlap issue. So yeah, the the basic instincts of the Reformed and the Reformed Orthodox are totally exactly what the tradition of literal spiritual sense are doing. There's no question with that. All that their concerns are are found in this is what we do. And you often find them citing someone like a Thomas Aquinas as, if not, they'll say, if he didn't get everything right uh, in his reading, his reading practices, he at least was one of the best models of someone who didn't abuse the spiritual sense, these types of things. He was much more moderate. And they like to quote Thomas ST1Q1A9, 
where Thomas talks, or excuse me, A10, where Thomas talks about spiritual sense of Holy Scripture. And he says it has to be founded upon the letter. Hmm. For and that's that's for various reasons, but we can talk about this. So Thomas had the letter controlling both in his theology and in his practice, this spiritual way of reading and gathering knowledge of supernatural reality by way of consideration of the realities. Mm. Because God reveals not merely in the letters of the Jews, but also in the history of the Jews and also, of course, in the New Testament. That's helpful. Um, Maybe as we draw to a close, uh, you you mentioned how some of the best readings are the grandma readings. (laughs) uh, How is this study yourself impacted the way you read scripture? And and how would you describe what the grandma reading is, maybe on a personal level, what that's been like for you as you've been studying with Thomas and reading his stuff? How has it been personally constructive in your reading? I mean, it's been, uh, that that would be a, we'd be here all night uh, if if, if we start. But, you know, look, theologians get very high and mighty and things get pretty insanely technical very fast. But there's not much more that's actually said about God, about Christ, than your average Joe, old saint, who has sat and studied and saturated themselves in the Holy Scripture. Uh, throughout their lives, prayerfully, openly to God, to the leading of God, Holy Spirit, illuminating their mind, making connections. I mean, God is God is so active in that. But uh, you know, you can't you can't help really, but immerse your when you immerse yourself in Holy Scripture, you can't help but derive the insights and the notions and the senses that 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 were there. The Bible is pitched to normal people. Uh, is the instrument of God to lead people into supernatural revelation, supernatural truths who are not smart, who are not the wise, as the tradition calls them, but who, who are us, us normal, simple folks. So the, the, the mystery of the text of Holy Scripture is, you know, people don't want to get uncomfortable about all oh, this crazy instrument of God, God working the text. No, seriously, the mystery of whatever is going on as we encounter the text prayerfully in dependence upon the Spirit of God um, is that he uses it habitually and regularly to lead us into truth. And uh, yeah, you don't you find how to do that better and more technically and more precisely in theology, but you don't learn it. You don't learn how to do different stuff. And uh, maybe that would be something I would say to that question. It's a great reflection on that. Thank, thank you, Ryan, for joining us. This is really great material. I'm going to put uh, in the show notes some links to your works, and uh, really appreciate you coming on. And and uh, this is a, a really, uh, I think, a much needed discussion, but something that I hope spurs people on to really dive back into the Bible, read it for what it's worth, and to appreciate some of the resources we have in our in our tradition. But uh, thanks again, Ryan. Appreciate you, thank you. being here with us. Thank you.